Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 2, Head Office. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discussed. You don't have to, though, and you can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 Podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I'm going to try to do this extemporaneously as possible, just by going off of notes and walking through the film. We're going to miss a lot. Hopefully I can get to everything. If you're playing the DVD, you can select that play button now. And if you're doing the YouTube, select the 90-minute version and press play now. And it should sync, much like Wizard of Oz to Dark Side of the Moon. So Head Office opens with a commercial. It's Eddie Albert from Green Acres. And he's going to tell you that he is the CEO, president, and chairman of INC Inc. International, the company that cares about people. They manufacture everything in the world that you can imagine. And he's going to bring out his two steel balls, which supposedly is the first thing his company made. And he fondles these balls throughout the film. So Helms himself echoes a contemporary conservative politician in the 1980s named Jesse Helms who made a career championing racial segregation, disenfranchisement of African Americans, he opposed women's rights, he was anti-affirmative action, anti-abortion, anti-gay. And it's probably no secret they're named the same. Watching Helms on TV is Bob Nixon on the left, the name of another conservative politician, and Dantley on the right, Scott Dantley, and they are Helms's yes-men. We're going to get into the plot in a, in a minute, but effectively the plot is INC wants to shut down a plant nearby in Allenville and move it to South America to a generically named company. And in order to do that, uh, they want to get a senator in the Senate that's going to head a committee named Jack Issel to investigate the deal. They want to get him on his side, so what do they have on him? And Nixon comes up with something out of the Hoover's FBI. He says they laundered campaign through his banks, kind of like out of Watergate. His wife is a heavy boozer, kind of like uh, famous politicians in the 70s that I won't name. There's some, some hookers running around, like other politicians in the 80s. And then men's room shots is what Nixon brings up. So that is kind of contemporary with John Wiener and dick pics and some senators from Utah being caught in airport bathrooms looking for gay sex. This is William B. Davis, a Canadian actor who is most famous now for playing Cancer Man in The X-Files. So Dantley and Nixon go to this graduation ceremony to meet with George Coe, who's playing Jack Issel Sr., who is the senator who heads the committee that investigates corporations in Latin America. 
They're going to get to him by offering his son Jack a job at INC after Jack graduates with his MBA. Now Jack here is played by the hysterical and always likable and lovable Judge Reinhold and every man and Jack is going to help this biology student lose her virginity and we know Jack's superhuman now because he's actually going to make her orgasm on her first time. She, this is an experiment to her. She's checking her vitals. And to her, this is, this is just uh, business. Sex is just business to her. We'll, we'll see later. The rabbits, of course, standing in for human beings and their sexual appetite. As you can tell by the credits, everybody in the world that was working in the 1980s is in this movie. And we'll eventually get to that. So we start off in a what looks like a very Ivy League environment. And Jack's going to be a little bit late for his diploma. Now, I, I love head office, and I love the 80s, but I, I think that I'm the only one. A lot of historians don't like the 1980s. Not many of them have very nice things to say about it. They think that it's a decadent decade. I hear that a lot. As composed to what is my return? Like you know, the 70s? It's more decadent than the 70s? You know. But that's the general idea in academia. And they see the 80s filled with films like Rambo and Robocop. And, and, and they're not real hip on Reagan America. And they're not real hip on, on 80s culture. And they think 80s music is a sham. I grew up in the 80s. I had a lot of fun in the 80s. And 80s culture, 80s film, 80s music meant a lot to me when I was growing up. And I I don't buy into this idea that culture in 80s America is, is bankrupt. I think it's very rich. And this film, although it's hostile to corporations in the 80s, here's this handshake here. Because that's what this, this sex is. It's a, it's a business arrangement. That's what sex is in the 80s, um, according to head office. But I, I reject this, this idea that there's nothing valuable in, in this decade simply because it's a decade that had a conservative Republican president. Head office, it's kind of like network or general hospital or Office Space has got a generic name. Office Space is similar subject matter, but it tackles things in a, in a different direction. Ken Finkelman here is his credit. He's a director and writer of Head Office. And he, he came up with a brilliant script that I think went 90% of the way. And we'll talk about the Deuce Ex Machina ending. So the... Poster for head office actually had a huge dollar sign on it that's shaped like a building or a phallic symbol, I guess. And the tagline was, Join the lunatics that run the world's most irrational multinational. Helms here is flying in to work in the morning as Jack Issel is just getting out of bed and he gets a book from his dad called How to Win Through Intimidation from his father. And we can we can conclude that his dad used this book in the climb to the top of the political ladder. 
and he wants Jack to do the same. And so intimidation, which is completely different than ethics and morality, is how you succeed in business. And the rest of the sequence for the next 20 minutes is Jack's first day of work. And it goes by very fast and it's very crowded. And I, I hope I'm going to hit all of the points here. Helm says in, in a chopper, he says, 20 years ago I came to this town with less than $43 million in my pocket and now I own all of this. It's almost like he's trying to pass off this, you know, rags to riches story, which is completely bullshit. And he, he champions this idea with his his balls in his hand and cutthroat measures and bullying tactics. This is basically intimidation and it's as if he's read Senator Issel's book, How to Win Through Intimidation. This is kind of paralleling our, our first connection to fascism, where everything is fought with and, and won using intimidation, not ethics. And Helms's mourning is completely opposite of Jack, who slaps himself to try to wake himself up. So here comes the plot, which is Frank Stedman, played by Danny DeVito, and Stedman is in charge of killing this Allenville plant that they that INC wants to move to the Latin American country generically named San Marcos. And he knew about the deal and dumped his stock. And then INC announced they were selling the plant early. They were going to announce it at Christmas and fire everybody. But for some reason, that decision was changed. And Frank stood out as the, there's Don Novella as the driver there. Father, Father Guido Sarducci, for those of us who grew up in the 80s. I understand two of them were card tricks. And, and Stedman stood out as the single share seller, and he's being investigated by the SEC, so INC is going to to dump him. I missed the song in Jack's apartment where uh, the song is So Real Surreal. So real, comma, surreal. And it's kind of parodying what Jack is going to see, which is he can't believe that in the situation that he's in that people behave like this, act like this, and this is big business in America. So, Stedman is trying to run over the traffic. Traffic is seen as, you know, sort of ironic progression of, of society in the 80s. Traffic is horrible. After he gets dumped by his boss, Sid, on the phone, Sid is talking to Dantley right now about firing Stedman. And then Dantley puts it on hold so that Nixon can listen to this woman in the news talk about how she wants to talk about what stocks to buy and what stocks to sell during a thermonuclear exchange, which is crazy. Who wants to think about what GM stock is worth during a nuclear war? But Dantley uh, gets back on the phone, tells Sin, hey, Helms wants him gone. Here's... Helms coming in here. I own this building. I own that building. I know that guy. Blah, 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 blah. I love it up here. Yeah, must, it's good to be the king, right? It's kind of like Mel Brooks and History of the World Part 1, which was around, I think it was the year before. So here's Stedman looking for Dantley in the halls of INC, trying to save his job. And Danny DeVito is perfect for this role. You see how everybody towers over him. 
And here's Jane Seymour looking at a nude men's magazine, which is on sale in the lobby of INC. And they're talking about feminism and women power. And Jane Seymour puts the penthouse mag back and she gives the fist of power. But then she interrupts it uh, to go talk to Stedman, who she's clearly sleeping with in order to get a promotion. And she doesn't know that the ball is dropped yet. Stedman tells her, and all of a sudden, Jane Seymour, whom I should refer to as, you know, the hot in this film, I think, for the rest of the film, she she all of a sudden just backs out. She says, well, I've got, I got racquetball all this week and all this other things. And, and racquetball, we'll learn later, is a sport of intimidation used in, in corporate America to uh, get what you want. So here is Wallace Shawn on the left. You, everyone knows him from The Princess Bride, Inconceivable. And he plays Kennedy, or I'm sorry, Hoover. Kennedy's on the right, so you have more presidential names. Hoover's talking about how everyone hates him. And uh, Hoover says, no, no, not everybody hates you, but, you know, it's Monday. Stop, stop acting like it's Friday. And the reason everybody hates Kennedy is because he's a lying cheat who stabs people in the back at the first opportunity and you'll see that in in the next couple of scenes with with Kennedy so here uh, comes Helms off the la- the landing pad with Brian Doyle Murray as this um, wonderful part he's got is this astronaut who is assigned to deal with an advertising company to sell toilet paper so we know everything's full of shit <laughs> And Dantley is pushing uh, the same phrase to everyone he meets every morning, which is, you've always been a hero, sir. And we'll see later when he meets other people, you can assume that he's saying the same thing, and some of the people that are coming are not that particularly worthy of being called heroes. So here, Hoover uh, finds out that he is got eight months to live and he's crushed he snuffs out the lamp on his desk which is basically his career his life Stedman racing through the hallways and he comes into his office and they're already ripping up the carpet taking out the the furniture and everything and Jack is supposed to be reporting to Stedman because that's what Max the HR rep told Jack on his answering machine so Stedman is is pissed Uh, I'm not dead and he storms off again to Dantley and here's here's Max getting slammed up against the the wall by by Danny DeVito Uh, and he acts like all this normal it happens every day it's no big deal Uh, you won't be reporting to Frank Stedman he's just been fired so uh, let's let's find another place for you and I hear you're going to be reporting to uh, Howard Gross, who's the best PR man in the business, and we're going to go see him. So Howard Gross here is play- portrayed by Rick Moranis, and this is after Ghostbusters, this is after Strange Brew, this is after um, his entire SCTV career, and uh, Moranis plays up this this guy, Howard Gross, who who has to sell this story to the media that INC is is the company that cares about people which is the tagline that Helms uses in his commercial almost like the Tyrell Corporation you know, more human than human, this is their motto 
We're the company that cares about people, and they're closing the Allenville plant, which is going to put 25,000 Americans out of work. So rather than deal with that, because that's another subject that he in PR can sell, you know, he passes up that, and he doesn't want to talk to his wife about her dead father. Instead, that he would rather talk to his mechanic about fixing his Mercedes, because that's what's important in Howard Gross's life, his Mercedes, if you can believe it or not. So, just in case you missed it, uh, Max Landsberger is played by Richard Messer. We'll get into a little bit more of him later, but he's imbued with lessons that he tells Jack. Lesson number one, beware of the furniture movers. When the axe falls, they're always the first to know. People see them coming and they shit. And you'll see more of these humorous punctuations throughout the, the film that tell you a lot about Max and Max's character. Howard Grossman is... We'll get back to him in a, in a minute. Here's Stedman looking for Dantley. Where is he? The prayer breakfast. And then he answers, Jesus Christ. And then he leaves. Here's Gross again saying, this decision is, is crap. I didn't make this decision. That was somebody else's decision. I just approved that decision. This is our second link to fascism. That's, that's actually what... This is not a leap. That's, that's what Adolf Eichmann told the jury or the judges in Jerusalem when he was tried for the Holocaust. I didn't make that decision. I just approved somebody else's decision. Yes, this is my signature, but it's proving something else. So here's Max and Jack and telling Jack the, the next rule, which is never confront anyone and always try to get around anything that you do. And immediately Max practices this rule by going around Nixon, agreeing with everything Nixon says, not having a confrontation, and then moving on. And Nixon, of course, just lies to him. And then here Nixon reinforces his belief that you know if, if everyone were a good Christian, then this company would not only be the biggest, it would also be the best. So we know that the, the prayer breakfast is designed to intimidate people. And if you're not a white Christian, you really don't belong in the prayer breakfast. And here is Brian Doyle Murray again talking about what INC is about, what America is about. And it's a very scary list of moral order, vitality, national defense... We don't need homosexuals in our society. And some other scary topics. Foreign imports being one of the evils that America has to fight off. And on the heels of that, Max telling Jack that, you know, the secret to survival is never make a decision the minute you do you. You get screwed. This is coming up here. Stedman again pushing, pushing Richard Messer and Judge Reinhold out of the way. So here, Max says, "Do you think you can be executive material?" And, and basically, that means, "Can you kiss ass?" And on their way to. Gross's office, they 
they're effectively on their way to Gross's funeral. And we can predict that Gross here is going to have a, a heart attack. And you see his blood pressure rising unbelievably high. And believe it or not, he says, I, I love this business, which is absolute crap. He hates this business. He'd rather talk about his Mercedes. So, here the Gross's secretary is having, having a conversation with another secretary whose boss wants to meet with Gross. And she can't get the point across that Gross is actually dead, that he can't, uh, he can't attend the meeting. And people have this hard concept of, of even someone's life worth being worth anything. Instead, they talk about, uh, yeah, but he's supposed to be in this meeting, and all they care about is their jobs. That's the, the kind of corporation this is. I, I only care about what I have to do in order to get my, my job done because I'm being intimidated by my, my boss to do X, Y, or Z. And that's all that matters at INC. And the agenda is being set by the top. And what does Jack have to do on his first day? He's got to carry the second boss he was supposed to report to, to the, the gurney. And there's a complete lack of empathy around him, um, except for for Max, who just kind of goes with the flow. And, and Jack's just kind of amazed at it. So Max says, well, let me let me set you up with Mike Hoover. You know, he's got a great future at this company. Then we cut to, to Mike Hoover, played by Wallace Shawn, and, and he, we know that he just found out that he's got like eight months to live or something. And so he confides into this to, to Kennedy, Al Kennedy, and the first thing Kennedy does is is run to to the prayer breakfast to, to tell Nixon because he thinks that will give him advantage. So, these are presidential names. You know, Nixon is a known liar uh, and a Republican that mismanaged the economy. Hoover. So, these are the people that work here. Kennedy uh, promises to keep the secret. We'll, we'll see how long he holds that promise and this is funny because previously he was talking to to Hoover about how uh, nobody trusts him everybody thinks he's an asshole well it's because he does stuff like this and when he runs to the prayer breaks and, and he tells Nixon this Nixon says Jesus what does he have and and Kennedy replies well he's got the entire Latin American division and Nixon's like no you idiot what disease does he have this, this never enters anybody's mind Here's Brian Doyle Murray talking about social disorder, drugs, homosexuality, racial impurity, foreign imports. You see everybody in this room is white. So, this racial impurity, you know, this is on par with national socialism through and through. So there's Jane. She's the only woman in the room. I think she's the only woman in the company. And here's Frank getting his goddamn lousy $22 Timex for 15 years of service. So he's gonna toss the chair through the window and jump. Dantley is talking to Jack in the next scene. 
and he says, the company is a world unto itself. The company giveth, the company taketh away, the strong survive, the weak fall. And he says, Jack, it's not going to be easy on you, but I'll tell you this, you'll be a better man for it. And there's no way anyone watching this film is going to believe that line. And we're only 23 minutes in. Everyone sees INC as what it is now. The only honest person in the company is the guy he's shaking hands with. There's a complete lack of empathy. There's an overemphasis on masculinity. Even Jane doesn't have her hair down. She has her hair up. She's looking at men's magazines. So you're looking at some awesome immoral business values mixed with very overemphasized masculinity, overt sexism, overt xenophobia, and a complete lack of empathy for fellow human beings. And this is all masked in a, a Christian message uh, that we all need to be better workers in, in our nation and better Christians. It's kind of it's kind of disgusting. And if you've made it this far, you can you can make it through the rest of the, the film. This in effect, this all of these things, all these emphasis on masculinity, which is not masculinity at all, it's jingoism, it's misogyny, it's the, the sexism, the xenophobia, the lack of empathy, all of that is basically encased into one word. And I'm going to say it now, and you can freak out now, it's fascism. That's what fascism is, that's what it does. So when they go to the prayer breakfast, they're not really talking about Christianity. It's their form of Christianity, which is only white, which is only masculine, and which is responsible for everyone's careers. So you better do it, or we'll get rid of you too. So... Max says you're not going to be starting under Hoover because the rumor is he's, and it's only been a couple hours. The rumor is Hoover's going to be dead in eight months. How does he already know this? Everybody's talking about it. And here they run into Rabinovich, who's going to be the only other decent guy in the company. And then John Hudson shows up. John Hudson, blue eyes, blonde hair. He is what INC wants in an executive. But Jack is going to get all the attention because his dad is a senator. And Jack knows this. And here's Max exercising that rule. Don't confront. Get out of the way. And avoid confrontation. And of course, Jack is faced with the complaints department. And these are the WACPFSMML feminists. And then shortly after, he's going to deal with the child psychologist for a free Poland against whaling. And then he's going to deal with this homicidal maniac looking for uh, some someone he's stalking who used to work for INC. So you have sympathy for Jack here, and you might have a little bit of sympathy for INC because these complaints are so wild. But in, instead, what you get hit with is someone normal with a normal complaint about a real problem, and that's the Allenville move. And that's going to be brought up by Lorianne Ning Ingler here, who's going to play Rachel. And she's got a petition for Jack, 25,000 signatures, I think, to save 25,000 jobs. 
and Jack's not going to handle it very well. He's actually going to basically hit on her during the interview. She's going to dismiss his attempts as completely a sexual enterprise, which she's not entirely false, but she also dismisses him as a company man. And that's not entirely true. Jack doesn't know what the hell is is going on. And, and one morning, he's had three different bosses. And he's been assaulted and almost murdered. And, and told, if you survive this, you'll be a better man for it. And that's, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And that goes back to the surreal, so real. This is not a, this is not so real. This is a surreal environment. So the Allenville plant issue is a plot device. It's ripped from the headlines of that day and the most famous town implosions in American history is, is what happened to Flint, Michigan when General Motors staged down their production there over a period of decades. And it was one of the most thriving blue-collar communities of the 1950s, but Flint saw, you know, the great white flight and they had an oil crisis and plant closures and had a dramatic impact on Flint's economy and sociology. And GM was accused of moving auto plants to Latin America in the 80s, not so that they could survive, but so that they could make even more money than they were already making in Flint. And there were union problems and labor problems and things going on in other states. And you know, it wasn't easy. Globalization, there was exorbitant overhead. All of these things were blamed. A lot of these issues were raised in Roger and Me, 1989. That's the the documentary from Michael Moore that gained a lot of traction. And when I was a school teacher, I used to show that in, in sociology of how how a town can be be killed by one employer. Now, if the GM of of GM, the CEO of GM, I should say, Roger Smith who's in Roger and me, if he removed his glasses, he'd, he'd look a whole lot like Helms. There's a visual similarity. Moore did another film called The Big One in 1997, and he takes a union worker from a Flint production line to Mexico, and then the, the worker finds his job that he used to do on the, on the line in Mexico. I miss that, that line. I love that line, you know. Judge Reinhold says, I'm going, going to lunch at 12.30. So here's this huge phallus in the background here. You're going to see that phallus a lot, and it's coming out of Jane Seymour's crotch when she's lying down. This is a great scene. I love this scene. Love Jane Seymour. Love Jane Seymour and her lingerie. And if you hate everything else about this film, you simply can't take her away. So she's sleeping with Bob Nixon so that he can promote her. She's actually typing up his recommendation letter. And that is how women get ahead in this company. And it's it's not because of the way women are. It's because of the way men are. And the women are just using the only 
tools that men understand in order to get ahead appropriately enough in that shot. So this is the next day and Helms brings coach Frank Kipp to speak at the prayer breakfast and Dantley gives his line, you've always been a hero coach. Two Super Bowl championships with all white teams is quite a feat. And the coach says, well, it helps to have God in the backfield. So this is insinuates that God does not look kindly on those who are not white. And since they're discussing football, the coach is insinuating that God does not like African-Americans. And when this was going on, you know, Jimmy the Greek had just been dismissed from CBS for saying outrageous crap about African-Americans being bred on plantations. And that's why they were physically superior to whites on, on the field. And it's something that was, again, very, it was a contemporary event that made a whole lot of sense. And then they say, promote promote Jack, because we're going to make the Allenville move. See Jane Seymour rub the phallus here with her hand. And Jack just nods, and she's really happy, because she's got her promotion, head of PR, to PR division head, whatever the hell that is. And uh, whatever office she has, she has this phallus in their office to show who's in charge. And the phallus will pop up, no pun intended, whenever you see Jane who will always have her hair up uh, even in, in this situation where it's actually hanging out the, the back and in, in another other scene she she looks extremely masculine red being the color of power which is her shirt here so Nixon's pissed because she won't go back on a date with her she's just she's, you know I'm busy and Nixon's so pissed that he leaves Jack feels uncomfortable but Jane doesn't care and he runs into Rabinovich who's wearing tape on his glasses and has brown shoes now, Rabinovich is not necessarily a Jewish name but Nixon already pigeonholes him because of his appearance and, and calls him Rubenstein and Rosenberg and if, he, if you had done that now You'd be looking at a major lawsuit, but in, in this company, it's okay to, to denigrate and, and downgrade Jews because they're not Christian. They don't share your values. And then he says, black only in this corporation. Well, why black only in this corporation? Well, that's, you know, that's what the SS war was black. And, and that's what Nixon is, is he's a, he's a freaking Nazi. So Jane here is looking at this petition about the Allenville 25,000. And tells Jack, you know, write up a report on this. I want to know more about it. And we're going to step off of that into some more of this relationship. Sorry, I'm getting caught up in watching Jane Seymour go back and forth. Movie's a whole lot easier. So this black guy roller skating... Uh, right past INC executives uh, it kind of tells you a lot of where society is and where it should be uh, in the 1980s African Americans had a lot to catch up to they had a lot to put up with and they had a lot to pass uh, like bullshit executives in, in suits so here's Rachel trying to convince these guys uh, look Allenville is closing and here's Jack eating another phallic symbol a hot dog but he's not normal because instead of ketchup on his hot dog he's got mustard and Rachel 
knocks them and it smears into his jacket. Uh, so we know that Jack is a little little off center. <clears throat> no one here cares about the Allenville 25,000 because they're not in Allenville. And this guy in the background is panhandling, obviously. He's not white. And that's kind of the vision of the movie. That's, that's where, in, in head office, that's where minorities belong. You know, women are relegated to secretaries and assistants in the snow pool and all of those, those things. So she tells him, I don't like your company, I don't like anything you stand for. And Jack says, well, that's not true. You know, I, I stand for some things. You know, honor, truth, great sex, and life after death with air conditioning. So this, it's almost like he would rather go to a comfortable heaven instead of a of a, a very hot hell. This is his own non-organized spiritual way to tell Rachel that he's not like his company and he does have an ethical code, but he can't define it for her. So in historical terms, Jack is then, he's like millions of people living in America and to be honest, millions of Germans and Italians and others in fascist country who, who saw about them every day evil even though they personally did nothing directly to equate to the evil they witnessed, they still did nothing themselves to stop it. Now, Rachel here is a revolutionary, and she wants to do something about it. And Jack is like these millions of ordinary people who see things going on, but he feels powerless to stop it. So this is a friendly racquetball game and it's basically a game to intimidate uh, Judge and the Jew, as I like to call it. Now, he's got the Rabinovichus of the Kamikaze bandana on, and Japan at the time, of course, was very racialized. And this is an image from the Second World War that portrayed Japanese pilots as insane, suicidal, and content to die in the service of their emperor, 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 emperor. Tire, where that's an image that Americans... Uh, saw of the Japanese at the time. And uh, who are they playing? Two blonde, blue-eyes guys. So, again, racquetball is a game that has exploded in the 80s. And it's a sport that was hoarded by elitists. And I won't go too much into that because I played racquetball in college. So there's heavy anti-Japanese sediment in the 80s. This, this was due to a rise, the failure of the American auto industry to cope with these changing markets or compete with better products. So people talked about Jap crap and they used that to describe Toyotas and Hondas and Nissans and those were inferior to Fords and Chevys and Chryslers. And the cars were smaller and they had better gasoline because they had to compete with these larger American cars and get them an edge over the competition. And you can see that in the film, you know, Sal's enormous limousine, for example. So Rabinovich takes on this personality, this Japanese personality, which is the only one that can beat the white Christian businessman at his own game, racquetball. And he shows that he has a greater commitment, a Japanese-like commitment. And we hope that that can crush American corruption and immoral business ethics, but it just can't. Not not in this film. 
And here Jack says, you know, he just wants to do the minimum. He just wants to keep the old man off his back. And and Rabinovich actually feels for Jack. And he says, well, you know, if you can get away with that, you know, that's great. But you get the feeling that Rabinovich doesn't have that type of opportunity. His dad probably isn't a senator. The job wasn't given to him. He had to fight for his job in an interview to get it. And, And being a Jew, he's singled out for discrimination and persecution in this company. So he, he's got to walk carefully. It's amazing that he even showed up to the racquetball game because he stands so much by losing. So here Hudson, who just lost the racquetball game, finds out that Jack's been promoted again. And he's upset and he can't take it out on Jack because he's the new golden boy. So instead he's going to take it out on Rabinovich. And Hudson's showing some sexism here, too, some overt sexism. I see how they are smoking in the background. Like, you'd, that would be a $5,000 fine today, I'm sure. So there are lots of things in the background that make me laugh. You'd see decided lack of anything electronic. You know, Jack's going to write an email, and that's I think it's the only computer. There's like two computers in the entire building. So INC is a bit of a dinosaur, but it is the 80s. And Hudson's going to screw over Rabinovich here. And then we cut to a strip club, which was perfectly fine in the 80s for businessmen to take off during the day and go and make objects out of women so that they could feel better and then go back to work and be misogynist to their secretaries in the afternoon. Jack shows up here. He says, what's going on? And says, well... It's uh, it's not a good story. Basically, Hudson took Rabinovich's business card and he put it in a letter to INC clients in Saudi Arabia and he told them that INC is not going to participate in the boycott against Israel and the Saudis can go screw themselves. So the Saudis, of course, were upset, so... They told INC, basically, you need to fire Rabinovich, and INC didn't think twice. Because the issue is about money. It's not about the moral implications of what happens when corporations as large as INC join a boycott against Israel as the only Jewish country on the planet. And not going into those politics, but INC is not going to make any decision which costs them money on the profit line. You know, they would rather pay fines and, and fire people and send certain numbers of them to jail. That's, that's great. Now, I'll put in a story here because, well, no, I, I better wait. So here... Jack's pissed off Hudson so much that Hudson runs to security and, and tells him keep keep an eye on him so that security is looking at Jack's email and Jack is talking about cooperative plant ownership where the 25,000 employees of the Allenville plant can be offered shares and they can buy those shares and they can own the plant themselves. That way the plant will not have to move to South America. It can just stay in Flint. Well, INC is not going to put up with that. And so, of course, these guys show up like the Gestapo with their sunglasses and their 
their jacket. And this is the company that, that cares about people. They, they walk in here and, did you write this? And is this your report? And, you know, are you now or have you ever been Jack Issel? And this speech here that he gives, you're promoting the workers, controlling the means of production. That's anti-property, which is anti-business, which is anti-Inc. International, which is anti-American, which is anti-Christian, which is anti-life and pro-abortion. If I had my way, I'd take you people in the street and have you shot. My Lord, really? Because you're trying to save some people's jobs? So, he has lunch with Dantley and Nixon, and they brush off the security check, and they say that his idea to relate company policy to the company image as the company that cares about people is misguided. And possibly, I think he says this, subversive. Well, that's a loaded word if there ever was one. Subversive. And then there's this tennis match that goes on between Nixon, the Yes Men, and Dantley. And whenever a contradiction occurs, Nixon backpedals immediately. And Jack is watching this. As Nixon is a complete brown noser. And following this is Dantley's blatant revelation that INC doesn't just save money if they move the Allenville plant to San Marcos, but they stand to make millions in asset depreciation and tax refunds if the town dies. And at the moment of the word dies, actually the conversation switches to, to Hoover, and they, they talk about uh, what does Hoover have and how long does he have to live and when do you think it's okay to start moving his assets and his duties and responsibilities to other people and then Jack is looking on as really appalled and Nixon says well I can I can step in and and do this and he's basically he's already dead and Dantley's gotta gotta tell him well no he's he's not he's right over there I mean Nixon is at a table right behind him with Kennedy and he, it's a completely tasteless conversation and Jack is amazed at the lack of empathy then, unbelievably, Kennedy says, no, I didn't tell him. You know, if I told him, then my wife and my kids should be drug out in the street and shot today. And we're used to colloquialisms like this. We say, say I'd kill that guy. I'd do, you know, we don't really mean it. But Kennedy probably does. He's very being very cavalier with his word and what it means. And Jack jokes, well, why don't you just have, why don't you just have him, killed and get him out of the way and you see Nixon leaning in on Dantley to see what is Dantley going to say what's his decision and you see Dantley run the traps and Jack is just appalled he's like oh my god they're actually thinking about it and Nixon's ready to jump in and say I'll take care of it but the answer is, is no so here's the wonderful Jane Seymour again in lingerie looking like a million bucks in change in gold bars of bullion and we find out she's having an affair with Kennedy and I suppose you could say at this point didn't everybody have an affair with Kennedy? I guess in pop culture that would be something to say 
So Jane's pissed because the the report about Allenville has gotten out and it's gotten around and it's causing trouble and she doesn't want trouble. Uh, she just wants to screw her way to the top. And Jack is trying to steer his way through this controversy. So Jane Seymour gives a, a wonderful monologue here. And this might be the last time we, we really see her in, in force. But she admits that at one time she had a heart, and she admits that she started this way so that they could do great things once they had the chance to get the power to do them. And then you get the power, and you, you find out that you can't do these great things. It's just not possible, because when you have the power, you, you forget why you, you wanted all that power to begin with. And this taps into the corruption that consumerism and capitalism that money brings this band is general public they were around in the 80s and very generically named like head office like network like INC Inc. International And Max comes in, and he says he's listening to Dylan. So he doesn't like all this 80s stuff. Jack finds this humorous. He's still dressed a little bit more conservatively, but the, the wonderful thing about this scene is how Rachel shows up here with chopsticks in her hair, and her hair is frizzed. She's got these big earrings, and... and it's, it's great. She looks like she's out of a buckaroo bonsai scene. She doesn't look like someone who would know Dylan lyrics like Max necessarily. But you have the sense that she would sympathize with the things that Bob Dylan would sing about. So there's a lot to the scene. You could take this further into punk rock and what does punk rock mean and who plays punk rock and who listens to punk rock and who do they like and who do they not like and what was 70s punk rock and it was largely about starting over and rejecting basic societal norms but 80 punk rock when you look at other groups and not necessarily the ones that were created and controlled for sale by Malcolm McLaren or something but around that whole that whole scene of Susie and the Banshees and, and Nina and and a lot of the bands that you'll find on the Marie Antoinette soundtrack uh, that Sofia Coppola directed and, and, and chose them. 80s punk is not the same as 70s punk, despite its, its success. It's largely seen as cashing in on the previous, what some people would call true punk bands, you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols for sure, but even like harder core, hardcore punk bands like Flipper and Things. Here's the phallus again in in Jane's apartment, and Jane's gonna come over, and you know it is amazing. You know she rubs her hand up and down. This is a PG movie, and Jack's like giving it the thumb, like you know, he's almost like he's comparing like his tiny penis to Jane's enormous phallus. And she's got him. She's 
heading up the company almost as fast as he is. And, uh, and she looks great. She looks almost like Audrey Hepburn in that shot. And Jack's amazed by her narcissism. I am perfect. This I love this scene. Uh, I love this scene with, with Max saying this, this Aboriginal tribe is sitting on a lot of oil. They want to buy some, some of our jet fighters. And they want to roll them down the hill and crash into other jet fighters that are that another tribe that we're selling money to. So it's it's a funny scene. There's but it, it underlines that INC is complicit in racial exploitation. You know, it, they're abusing the lowest rung of the third world in these photographs and rather than not make the deal, rather than have conversations with these tribes about responsibly using their oil wealth to create social or civil services that would benefit them as a community, maybe. The INC is just stealing from these tribes because they, they don't know how the modern world operates, and that's just fine with INC. In fact, INC would probably label any social or civil services as, as communist. And then, amazingly... Um, Things move into Don King, who's the only black guy in this corporation. He's playing himself, and Don King has had a mixed reputation then, just as he does now. He's fought off several litigation cases from a lot of the boxers he used to promote. I'm not talking about small boxes either, like Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Tim Weatherspoon, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, and everyone ignores Don King until he says the word money, and then all of a sudden, let's listen to what the black guy has to say. It's the only reason why they're paying attention to him. I'll get back to Don King, I think, in a minute, but I want to I want to get to this next scene, which is absolutely hysterical. With Helms, uh, INC owns the phone companies, and Helms is going through individual files to see who has and who has not paid their phone bill. And Jack is amazed at this. Like, doesn't he have better things to do? Seriously, this is crazy. And uh, he says, why is he doing this? And Richard Masseur has the greatest line in the film. He feels it keeps him in touch with the people. <laughs> I cannot get through this movie without laughing at that. Sometimes I've had to pause it so I can finish laughing. Helms is the farthest from the people as to be completely unassociated with anything normal Americans do or think on a daily basis. You know, he's so wealthy that it's led him to like a megalomania that's induced him to living a life, not not just a, a wealthy American, but more like a, a fascist dictator. You know, he's, he's an autocrat here and he decides who lives, who dies, who works, who doesn't, who gets promoted, who gets fired, what African tribes get fighter jets, and ultimately who gets their phone line disconnected. This is crazy. And of course, someone's got to go down and talk about the Allenville deal, so he rolls his balls on the table. And who gets his balls? Who do you think? Drum roll, please. That's right. And they go to Jack and Max. So, I'll talk a little bit about Don King going 
back there and his cameo. You can see what INC thinks of African Americans. He's the only black person in this meeting. Seemingly, he's the only black person to INC, with the exception of the janitors and the aboriginals that are in Max's poster. So INC's racial theory does not provide room for non-whites or Jews. We saw Jane in the meeting in a previous scene, but she's not in this scene, so maybe she can get into the prayer breakfast, but she can't get into higher order meetings. So anyway, the, the entire reason of this scene, or the entire purpose of this scene is someone's got to go down to the Allenville plant because the workers are, are, are striking Someone's got to go down there and, and, and tell the, the cameras our side of the story because we don't want only the, the unions and, and the workers to have the, the story of them losing their jobs. And they want two sides of the story. So Jack says, what is our side of the story? And Max says, uh, we're losing money hand over fist. And that's not true. No, but it is our side of the story. You know, it gives them another lesson. There's, there are no truths, only stories. And and they're on their way to Allenville in this giant gas-guzzling American limo. And Max gets high with Jack. And Jack says, is there something wrong with what we do? You know, making hair removal cream and nuclear warheads. And Max says, no, because you would have to be high in order to think that that's normal. Of course it's not normal. And in a gag that's going to be repeated later, uh, Don Novello, who, who plays Sal, the driver, Father Guido Sarducci, he continually misses the exit to the Allenville plant. Max and Jack don't really care because they're high and the fumes might be affecting Sal. But as this goes on, it, it kind of becomes a metaphor for Jack and Max and everyone else that works at INC. So as, as much as you want to get off the crazy train, you just can't. It doesn't matter what you do. Tell the driver, don't tell the driver just forget about trying to jump off the exit and just accept that you're going somewhere where you're not supposed to be going. And they really should not be going to the Allenville plant because all, all hell breaks loose. The car is stopped by these very upset, laid-off plant workers. And car is eventually destroyed Max is separated from Jack and, and Max tells him don't you know, don't say anything, you're not in the state to say anything and Jack sort of forgets not who he is but the purpose of why he's there and we're we are led to believe because they just supposedly smoked a whole bag of weed that the inner nature <laughs> of the human thought process comes out and it's more logical and it makes more sense. I guess because of THC. And the, the truth is, as Jack tells the press corps, INC or any corporation does not have any responsibility to any of its workers. The only responsibility they have is to itself, to its profits, in order to survive in the marketplace. 
and that's it. There is no other consideration. Maximize profits and survive. That's the only thing a company cares about. And this is the cold, hard truth. And if you look at what's been going on in the oil patch the past 12 to 18 months, you will see that this is entirely true. There are millions of people out of work around the world right now because they are trying to maximize profits in order to survive. There are hundreds of thousands of people out of work in the state of Texas, in the province of Alberta, because corporations need profits or nobody gets paid. And unbelievably enough, when Jack says this, Helms gets upset. Like, how dare you tell the media that as a, as a company we need to make money? How, don't tell the media that. that. That sounds selfish. That sounds, you know, objectivist in the, in the Ayn Rand sense of the word. You can't tell them that. And, and then in the next scene, of course, he says, you know, fire the commie bastard. Just get him out of my company. You know, that's hysterical. He just just talked about how free enterprise works on a profit-based system, which is von Hayek, almost. You know, definitely Adam Smithian. And, and then, he, then he basically calls him a Marxist. It's completely crazy. Jack's dad disowned him. The workers destroying the limo really reminds me of the Battle of Seattle, I assume that's a car factory, Allenville. The Battle of Seattle, you, know, you had these these employees at Boeing, supposedly, and even employees at Starbucks. They went out to protest the, the WTO conference, I think it was in 1999. They destroyed <laughs> half of downtown Seattle, and, and they protested against world trade. Well, most of what Boeing does is world trade. They sell their, their jets to foreign companies overseas and and, and you're, you're protesting global trade and you know the employees of Starbucks like oh my god if you didn't have global trade Starbucks wouldn't have their beans they, they wouldn't have these uh, these jobs if you, if you don't like to work at Starbucks because of the global outlook of the company then don't work at Starbucks there are other places to work If you with Boeing I'm pretty sure you'll be making 10 or 15 times more than somebody who works at Starbucks so it's a little bit different of a situation. The line workers and counter workers, I'm sure, are, are paid in vastly different scales. So, Allenville itself, of course, Sal's pissed off because his, his car is, is his mode of life and it's just been destroyed. And, and, and Sal is not an executive INC. He's just a driver. He's a Latino driver trying to earn a buck and they just destroyed it. It's, it's kind of the whole point of that previous conversation, but Allenville's kind of reminds me of Allentown, the song by Billy Joel. It's sort of a similar situation. Allentown was a, a steel town, and eventually steel just became so low on the need scale. The production fell and everything that 
Billy Joel wrote a song about how Allentown slid down the tubes, much like Flint. It was on his Nylon Curtain album, and that came out in, in 1982. Pressure was a big song, if you remember that song, and it was that hit number 20, and then Allentown came that following fall in November, and it hit number 17 on the Billboard charts. So... The result of sending Jack to tell INC's side of the story. It's a complete disaster. Helms actually says, you know, just kill the bastard. And Dantley Nixon said, you can't do that. It's the post-Watergate 80s. You can't do that. He says, get him out. And he says, you know, I'd have him, I'd have him out on the street before you could say Henry Ford. Well, that's interesting. Henry Ford was a famous anti-Semite. He wrote a lot of books. One of them was called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. He, he also published The Protocols of the Elders of Zion in English. And Adolf Hitler actually had these books published in German in Germany. And there were some Henry Ford tracts that were handed out to students in the public school system in Germany. So you, if Helms is liking him, himself to Henry Ford... That's one of the reasons why, considering he doesn't want any Jews in his prayer breakfast. So Rachel sees that Jack is willing to put his money where his mouth is. He, he's not the company man that she thought he was, so she goes ahead and sleeps with him. <laughs> um, not a terribly convincing role of a woman in a film, but it works for this plot, and Jack comes in, and hey, his office is being cleaned out. So he's guessing that he's fired. And here's this <laughs> interior designer deciding that none of his swatches match Jack's suit. Things go haywire when the editorials decide that Jack Issel Jr., son of the Senator Jack Issel Sr., was actually just telling the truth about how corporations really work, and that's okay. It's it's okay because they, they were honest. Well, go really quickly through, here through the cast. Eddie Albert, my dearly love, and if you're my age, you remember reruns of, of Green Acres on UHF. And if you're my mother's age, maybe you remember him as the comic relief in Roman Holiday with Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. And George Coe, who plays Jack's dad, he got his big break in Kramer vs. Kramer, but he was in lots of stuff. Simon and Simon, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Remington Steele, I remember him from Max Hedrum. Uh, Danny DeVito, of course, was had Taxi and Romancing Stone under his belt. Rick Moranis, we've already discussed. Uh, Jane Seymour got her start with this guy hanging down here in the middle of the ceiling. Uh, and, and Max at the table. He's just hanging here in the middle of the room, so I guess Rabinovich was wrong. Like, the ceilings the ceilings aren't low enough. Uh, they are. It, it is too high. So that was a little bit of a joke coming back to it before. But Jane Seymour got her, her first big break when she played Solitaire at an extremely young age in Live and Let Die, the James Bond film. And she's had a brilliant career in television w with George Coe ever since. And then Wallace Shawn from The Princess Bride, we were talked about that. Brian Doyle Murray, 
um, most famously played the caddy manager in Caddyshack. See that blood? Pick it up. That's the guy. And, and he was also the mayor of Punxsutawney in Groundhog Day. And he's he is the eldest brother, I believe, of Bill Murray. They have a lot. There's like ten Murray brothers and sisters. And I think Brian Doyle Murray is the oldest. And then Laurie Nan Engler, who, despite a wonderful performance, never seems to have worked again, and I don't understand why. She's perfect for this film. She looks lovely in it. And uh, I wouldn't mind seeing another 10, 15 movies with her. And then Judge Reinhold. And he was huge in the 80s. He had his breakout with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Ruthless People, Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, Offbeat, vice versa. Hasn't been very visible sense, but he still works very consistently. So here Helms reverses himself. We gotta keep him on the team because he's popular. We gotta save Jack and Helms basically reveals the the further the plot of the movie. There's a general in San Marcos who won't play ball. He's in charge. We need to remove him and put in another general who will take our money. And we need Jack to help this out. Um, and that means we need Jack's dad to be nice to us when, when the Senate investigation finds out what we're, what we're up to. This is a, a realignment of American interests abroad. That's how Helms says it. So on the way to the prayer breakfast, and I'll, I'll get to that actually, this guy he looks very... Japanese. He's actually speaking German. He's not just speaking German. He. This is actually an audio file or an audio reel of, of Adolf Hitler. This is Hitler's voice speaking. They've played over the movie. Nobody understands what this guy is saying. Look how intent they are when they're looking at him as if they're picking up every word. And it's very, very important what he's saying. And, you know, Max says, well, I don't listen to these guys anyway. Uh, no kidding. And then there, here comes this unbelievable Mussolini roll of the arms as if he's Benito on the balcony in 1935 or whatever, and everybody claps after his speech about genocide or whatever the hell it is that he, he was saying. Uh, if you stop and think about that scene, you start to realize just how completely screwed up that scene is. It's messed up. Don't think about it too much because you'll get angry thinking about it. So, going back to to the plan or to the, the walk to the prayer breakfast or Jack says, oh my God, this place is absolutely bananas. And Max says, hey, you know, you're going up. Everything's fine. Uh, but you see, Max has kind of hit a wall. Things are so loony now that not even Max is responding. Uh, but Jack, Max tells Jack, listen, the reason that you're just flipping out is because you're actually one of the very few sane people here. And because nobody, nobody with a sane mind would, would work at INC and do the things that we're doing. That's why Jack is having a hard time dealing with it because he has the same mind. So, in that same conversation, Jack says, 
And, and here, of course, Jack is going to find out that Rachel is Helms' daughter, and he's going to be upset with it. But don't worry, they'll get through it. Um, Jack says, you know, what is the prayer breakfast about? And Max says, oh, I pray to the gods of greed, pray to the gods of money, the gods of volcano, the tree gods. And it's almost like Max is saying, really, it's God has nothing to do with it. And he says, you know, when uh, rule number 79, when the tough get going, the weak get screwed. And he tells Jack, it's okay, you know, it's all right. Just, just go and worship the gods and, and move on. And Jack's really not willing to do that. He feels like he's losing a little bit of his soul. And, and then when he sees that Rachel is working for the soulless monster that is in charge of all this, he just he's very confused. He doesn't know what's going on. So INC is basically like a like a temple. Now, he goes to Helms's house and spills his coffee, and he sees Rachel, and he destroys the Stradivarius violin worth millions of dollars, and he only finds out, of course, that, like everything else about INC, it's a fake. The violin is a plastic, cheap imitation that's built to mimic the sound of a Stradivarius for $49.99, so we're, we're left the impression that Everything is not what it is. Rachel is not a working-class girl. Jack has retained his job at the expense of morality. And INC's products that are meant to serve mankind are actually cheap imitations built to fool people. So if you, if you look at the books on the shelf in the background, a professor of mine, Dr. John Zofi at the University of Houston Clear Lake, he told me that he went to Chartwell, which is Winston Churchill's home in England, and he said that Churchill had books and cases from floor to ceiling in almost every room and he when a guy turned her back he pulled a book off to see if it had been cracked and he said it had been it was real well read and he did another random inspection in another room and said that one was an expensive leather volume and that was well read too so he was under the belief that, that Churchill had actually read all the books that were in the study and I always wonder when I, when I see things like that in this film did Helms actually read those books did, is Helms a reader What's on that bookshelf? Henry Ford? Possibly. Why is he in the bathrobe? I can't figure that out. So, here Helms explains his plans for taking over San Marcos solely so they can exploit the people there as consumers for INC's products. So not only is INC going to move the Allenville plant there, but there's a franchise chicken chain that's going to come up in a little bit we're going to learn about. And we're guessing that Helms is also going to teach the entire nation of San Marcos how to play the violin, I'm guessing. And effectively, this means that you're replacing one general with another simply because one general has vision, as Helms explains it, and the other one doesn't. But you get the implication that the only reason why one general doesn't have vision is because he wouldn't take INC's money. So this is kind of timely using a Latin American country because at the time head office was released the Reagan administration was knee deep in this catastrophe in Nicaragua you know there was a there was an extreme left wing group called the Sandinistas in the 1970s who overthrew this very corrupt regime in 1979 and they continued this horrible reign of terror in the 1980s but they also brought the sweeping agrarian property reform, which was 
the largest redistribution of wealth in Nicaraguan history. This is this was followed by like literacy campaigns, healthcare campaigns, educa- education initiatives, and a lot of people like that, not not the fact that they were basically assassins and murderers. So along the border with Honduras, there were counter-revolutionary groups that were coalescing together, and these were effectively called the Contras. And when Reagan became president, he canceled aid to the Sandinistas, and later the same year, he authorized the CIA to give aid to the Contras. And soon the Contras were assassinating Sandinista officials. They were planting mines in the country's harbor, and they were blocking foreign aid. And and it was becoming more and more expensive, and Congress stepped in and said... Uh, no, you can't can't give aid to the Contras. We won't allow it. This became a very expensive covert war. George Crowell, in his book, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, talks about how, in comparison to the Afghani war, it was unbelievably expensive and unbelievably um, expensive in the, in the terms of resources, the number of agents that were that were involved in it, and the number of act, the amount of activity that was involved in the Nicaraguan effort paled. The, the Afghani effort paled in comparison to it. And there was a scandal that broke out later where it was proven that Reagan appointees violated U.S. laws to sell arms to Iran, with the with the byproduct of uh, Iran would free these American hostages that were being held in Beirut by Hamas. And the money from that exchange was funneled to Nicaragua to the Contras. This is after Congress banned it. So the... And and Colonel Oliver North, who hadn't worn a uniform in years, he was involved in all of this. And it became a huge deal. So this is kind of timely, this intrusion into Latin American society, Latin American governments interfering in another nation's politics is, is timely for this. So here's the, the runway and these models are coming out with machine guns and sniper rifles and SPAS-12 tactical assault rifles with foldable stocks. 12-inch coin silencers. You know, and they look like Lou Ferrigno and to choose someone of the time. And Helms tells... Jack to take this suitcase to this Latin American general, and we're going to make a we're going to make a deal with him. And Jack finds out effectively that it's a coup. And he takes Rachel with him. The, the consulate for San Marcos is actually in in the INC building. Don't tell me that's not conflict of interest. And then there's this amazing scene here with Dantley and and Helms and Jack, and it's it's getting quite disgusting. Um, Dantley says, well, you know, if only the, the government had the guns to stop the rebels, because that stops every military conflict, you know, just add guns to it. That's, yeah, the killing will stop if they just had the guns, please, please. And they call the rebels Marxists, which might be true, but they're not the murderers that INC is painting them to be. And Helms and Dantley burst out with his ultra-patriotic nonsense statement. They say that San Marcos is denying INC's Mr. Chicken fast food chain entering into their country. And, and Danley says, I sure as hell don't want some made Moscow Mr. Cabot shoved down my throat against my will. Like, but this is crazy. This, 
this this goes back to you know patriotism becoming a refuge of cowards. That's relived here, and there's ultra nationalism going on here, and fascism rears its head. And Dantley might as well be saying Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. Jack's got to put up with all of this, and uh, INC saying you know the, the Mr. Chicken franchise is a direct attack on American national security. Totalitarianism, no. Totalitarianism, see. Uh, that, that's crazy. Uh, wh- what, what do you mean? It, it's, it's good to be a dictator, but it's, it's not good to be a dictator. So here Jack finds it's a straight cash payoff, just like just like how he described him getting into INC with his dad earlier. And Jack delivers the money to this unit to general that's going to throw the coup. And he realizes the problem. And he tries to get out of there as fast as he can. But everything is uh, sabotaged when they find Rachel with a camera taking pictures. So, in the world of Latin American military juntas, well, you just... You just shoot them. So Rachel knees this guy in the balls. So there's a rejection of masculinity there. And they're trying to get out of the room. And Jack's not going to hand over $2 million in cash to a foreign government that he he could go to jail for. So he, he keeps the briefcase when he figures out that he's he's looking at thirty years if he's if he's caught doing this. And this general behind Helms here doesn't he look like Tony Montana? The first guy looked like Pancho Villa, so I guess it's okay. So then there's another amazing conversation, which is even more offending than the one that you you had at the dinner table. And Helms says, you know, we we're all good. We've made a deal with the with the guy running the show we're, we're not going to throw a coup and pay off this junta and then Dantley says quote we're dealing with a race of people who just don't put the same price on life as we do it's always good to show these people how far you're willing to go it makes them nervous and gives us a negotiating leverage this sounds like Nixon trying to justify carpet bombing villages in North Vietnam to me that's disgusting and Jack and Rachel are traumatized because they were almost killed. And then Jack just instantly, he just can't take anymore. He can't be apathetic anymore. He can't be one of the millions that don't do anything anymore. He's not going to play along with this. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to take a stand, however little the stand is, no matter what the cost to him is. And he says to Helms, you can't, you just want to buy yourself a country like a stolen TV set, and then you launder the goods through something you call foreign policy. My God, America is a democracy. We're not some international fried chicken chain. And he punches Dantley, grabs the money, flees the room with Rachel. And I love this here, where he can't open the door. She kicks it open. So she's got the strength in the relationship. And intruder. Who's the intruder, really? Is Jack the intruder? He's trying to escape. So that's INC labeling people so it's easier to take care of them. 
It's a fire exit. He's not an intruder. Come on. Here the Gestapo is after them. And that's what they are. Coming out of here like men in black. They go into Jane's office and there's Jane. Or I, I, God, I hope that's Jane Seymour's legs. The, the phallus takes a few bullets there and is, is broken apart. And Nixon starts divvying up everything. Just like Dantley divvied up Stedman stuff. So, on the run here, Max, who's clearly lost his mind, helps out Jack very little. We'll get to that, but first, uh, Lori Nan Engler throws away Judge Reinhold's gun uh, because it violence escalates and escalates and escalates. Just like, you know, if the government had the the guns, the killing will stop. And then there's this inadvertent upskirt here. Which you tend to notice when you're 11, 12 years old. She runs out. Jack follows because who who knows the way out of the situation? Not the man. Man has no clue. <laughs> Woman knows the way out of the situation. And here's some major symbolism for you. They go into this storage area which, for some strange reason, is high in the building, but we'll just get past that plot device. And these are INC's ball bearings being stored, for some reason, in this building. Jack uses this water hose, which is what you know, the racists were using against the African Americans in the 1960s in order to control them. And he's using it on the Gestapo. There's a little bit of symbolism there. He's driving this forklift, a Japanese forklift, fleeing the, the Gestapo, using the ball bearings. They slip on the ball bearings. They can't get traction. And then he drives the forklift to the window. He and Rachel jump off, and the forklift absolutely crushes the limo, which seems like a funny gag. But now, of course, we see the Japanese forklift crushing the American car. That's, that's symbolism for you. Right there. Max helping Jack, Jack out uh, the little that he can. He's not going to join the revolution, but he's not going to stand in the way, of course. Gets rid of the dogs. A little bit of diversion. I wonder what Don Novello is going to do next. So the movie is now over in a matter of minutes. Jack and Rachel escape with the cash, and Jack signs over the cash to the Marxist revolutionaries that are taking donations at the protest outside, and he donates the money in Helms's name, and this enforces a Dussex Machina ending. So all of a sudden, everything's fine. So... In voiceover, Jack explains that his dad is the chairman of the Senate committee that overlooks the Latin American foreign policy, investigates INC and Helms in particular because of this $2 million donation to known enemies of the United States government. So you have to wonder if Senator Issel, does he only do this so that there's no 
conflict of interest, and, and what happened to those you know, bathroom shots that Nixon and Danley were talking about earlier. He even asked, like, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And he, he held and says, I'm a Christian, I'm a businessman, and I refuse to recognize this illegal committee, which is what the Hollywood 10 told HUAC in the 50s. Helms refuses to cooperate. And he finds himself in contempt of Congress. Rachel gets his, his uh, shares. Nice scene there of Rachel in her underwear. Sorry. So Rachel inherits Helms' huge share of INC stock. And in effect, she becomes the leading shareholder and the decision maker of the company. So we're, we are guessing that she uses that power and control to put Jack in charge of the company as chairman or CEO or president or whatever the hell it is. And so we, we don't know what happens to the Allenville plant. We don't know what happens to Nixon or Dantley or the rebels in San Marcos or Max or... We don't even know the uncertain future of an untold number of Mr. Chicken franchises. Instead, you know, we see Rachel in her underwear, which I'm not going to complain about. Uh, but she basically is the proof that Jack stood up and did something. And he wasn't going to be passive anymore. So Jack is a man again because he stood up to jingoism. And his reward for doing this is successful sex with Rachel. So Jack's looking down on this helicopter on his way to INC. And he's not looking down on an American city. He's looking down on Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is where this film was shot. And I can only assume that this was done because it was cheaper for TriStar to outsource this film and move the production to a foreign country because the cost of labor was cheaper in Canada. So... We're in the credits now, so from beginning to end, head office emphasizes fascism in 1980s business culture, the ultra-nationalism that's in the movie. It's promoting you know, what is American and what is un-American. There's jingoism that's apparent in this company that has given no power to any female executive not willing to have sex with her superiors. There's a totalitarian one-man rule evidenced by the CEO who rules over his company like a dictator. He displays chauvinism by holding his balls of steel in his hand and fondling them while he discusses murdering coups in South America to save these Mr. Chicken franchises. The head office is a nightmare of American business. And the film operates on the popular phrase that if you don't get people to laugh while discussing a serious topic, they're going to kill you. Ken Finkelman created a very unique film here. And it's again, it's not perfect like Blade Runner. It's not perfect. But it's a damn good attempt that displays 1980s business culture as a toxic fascist environment that was racist and that was anti-Semitic and it had no moral qualms about sending thousands of hard-working Americans out of work just so the company could throw a coup and 
murder whoever they want. Presumably thousands of more people, all in the name of making a profit off of internationally franchised fried chicken. Jack is the almost every man. He's the recipient of favors due to this corrupt system of patriarchy. But he had a latent hatred of everything that his father stood for. However deep down it seemed to be, it reared his head and saved the day, and it became clear that he could not stand aside and let this go on. He could not let INC destroy the lives for profit and murder at will. So Jack fought the Holocaust that supposedly would have happened in the fictional country of San Marcos. He fought fascism, and he won, and he proved that you didn't have to be an ultranationalist, sexist, racist in order to score with the boss's daughter. Not everything in head office is the nail on the head. Not every company is... INC International. Companies didn't start being corrupt in the 1980s and they didn't stop being corrupt in the 1980s. And not every company behaved like INC. There's this conception that every company in the 80s was was like this and that's simply not the case. But it was a problem and Americans as they saw these problems, felt more and more uncomfortable with these problems in corporate society. Unfortunately, head office bombed at the box office, and because it's a comedy, it's lost in a shuffle of films. Lots of academians and film critics hate comedies and of course, Hollywood will take the money, but they're not really fans either. I mean, when, when was the last time a comedy won an Academy Award? When was the last time a comedy was nominated for an Academy Award? Cue the crickets. I love Head Office for a number of reasons. First, it's, it's a great comedy with great lines from a, a lot of funny people. Secondly, I was, I was raised in a sarcastic house, and I found these jaded assumptions, even as a youngster, I found them amusing. And as I grew older, I saw into the deeper meanings in head office about corporations and morality and ethics. And there's not too much more to it than that. Now, keep in mind, though, you know, this is just, it's just a movie. In the end, you know, these are all just movies. And everyone thinks there's a lot of Kinleys out there, but there's a lot of Judge Reinholds, too. And I've never met anyone who saw an office. <laughs> Though I watched it endlessly on HBO and on videotape, I've probably seen it a hundred times. And in the end, it's just as much of a, a failure now as when it was released, and that's really too bad. I think this is a great film, despite its being thrown together at the end. I think it needed much better marketing then, and, and now it needs like a heavy treatment by Criterion or someone like that, commentary by Judge Reinhold. It's a window into a world we need to remember. INC is just like Enron or WorldCom. And sometimes, just like the company that laid me off. 
we can learn from head office while we laugh. And how often can we do that in cinema? Not too often. Most comedies now are dick and fart jokes. And there's there's not much more than that. Make you laugh and grab the cash. Not head office. It's not absurd. Before I part, I'd like to thank J.W. Maxey for letting me use his essay, Judge Reinhold Fights Fascism, from his book, The Shattered Mirror and Other Papers on History and Film, which is available on Amazon.com. And I used that in heavy abundance, and in some cases I used direct quotes. You can find the link on my website, but J.W. doesn't have a website of his own. Thanks for hanging out with me the last 90 minutes. I hope you found this interesting. Whether you watched Head Office with a commentary or just listened in your car or drinking on your back porch. Hopefully the latter. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blogs at www.thatdylandavis.com. And you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes by leaving a rating and a review or on my SoundCloud. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and find my books on my website or amazon.com. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her at www.rosalindmcphail.com. That's R-O-Z-A-L-I-N-D-M-A-C-P-H-A-I-L. Check out her SoundCloud and her other projects. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll be meeting next time with Cindy, the perfect female type, 18 to 25. She's here to sell for you.